So, I thought we would start uh, this morning with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man yes. who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. So this is uh, poetic, and it starts out with... The man who is blessed will not stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, uh, or walk in the counsel of the wicked. I reversed my orders there. Um, we're actually going to see a similar structure in Ephesians as far as um, standing, sitting, standing, and walking. Actually, it'll be sitting, walking, and standing. But... Um, before we jump into that, uh, I should pass around, you should have in front of you uh, a chronology of the apostolic age. And I realize the type is small because it's two pages and it's covering a lot of material. This is actually from the uh, THD dissertation that was published by... Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the same author that uh, I draw on for the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. So he's part of his doctoral work was uh, dating, I believe accurately, events in uh, the Bible. So he has a whole section on the birth of Christ, a whole section on the uh, chronology of Messiah. Um, a whole section on the apostolic era. So I, this is uh, a significant summary. It, it uh, is many, 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 many pages if you actually read the dissertation, condensed into two, so the print is small. Uh, but it is an outline which I wanted to go through today because it kind of sets the stage for uh, Ephesians. i wake this thing up. So, y'all read through Ephesians this last week, right? At least a couple of times. Yes? Yes, Okay. So, I, I did. So, when you, when you read through the first time, what questions did you ask yourself? Good. Right, just read through. I Well, the, the thing about questioning on your first read is it causes you to stop or slow down. Or read without actually knowing what you're looking at. Right, right. So that's why I wanted to first read, just read it as if you'd never read it before. And just read it for um, first impression and not asking questions. So subsequent reads, I asked you to ask some questions. What were the questions? Standard interrogatives. What, what were they? Who, where, why? Yep. Who, where, why? What? Uh, those were the specific ones. What? When? when. Yeah. So we'll start with the with the who question. Who? Yeah. Well, 
Let's start with the why question. Why? <laughs> okay. Why? Well, that's why I figured we'd start there, and then we'll unpack the the who and the the when and and look at that a little bit. Daniel. The the why the why was is um, in order to uh, encourage um, new believers and to point to their uh, where they stand and where they are in relationship to God that they are in relationship with God and so therefore be encouraged by that and you know separate yourself from the world um, and. So to encourage that and to show that and identify with it and so that we can live without sin. Very good. Um, so encouragement is part of the reason it was written. Um, I'm trying to capture a word that would, uh, uh, the whole of how we should behave, how now shall we live in light of knowing so who we are. It, uh, for me, since I uh, for the last couple of years, because of Ephesians, has been a real way that the Spirit has um, convicted me on a personal level, mm-hmm. you know. And I think uh, the, um, the in chapter twelve, you know, mm-hmm. especially where you know I feel like you know let me put myself aside, but yet here I still am all the time. But and like Jim Sundown encouraged me a couple weeks ago, he said. And reminded me, you know, greater is the one that's inside of you that is in the world. Yep. So the the idea of walking in the spirit, walking in the light. Changes everything. Meditate on it day and night. Yes. I think the purpose of his writing is speaking about in verse 18 of chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, mm-hmm. what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Yeah. And, and, and so I see. Uh, so that's in the, the, uh, the prayer of uh, Paul. I would even back up one verse um, that says um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, and that your eyes, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened as a result of that, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of his glory and the inheritance in the saints. So you're absolutely correct in that um, the, an understanding 
of who God is and who we are in Christ is essential because that's where Paul's starting. And then he moves from there into, as you read through, and you see three chapters of some very significant theology, and then you get to a therefore. You always got to stop at a therefore. What's it there for? And uh, it says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then it expands on that. Tim? So to me, that's the summation of the whole book. Two words. Yep. But at least the, the thing to be, and it's walk worthy. Yep. What, what, what is that? You know, I'm yeah. Right now, I'm yep. In well, we're going we're gonna to talk about the calling, but there is that walk worthy. And then you get to the, the last part of the why. So know who you are in Christ, your position in him. Um, that should affect how you walk, how you behave. You should walk as a child of God, enlightened. And then finally, it says in chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and then it expands on that. So you see a, a threefold structure that helped develop that theme, which I think you're absolutely correct on, Tim. So if I was to try and state what is the thesis of Ephesians, I would center exactly where you did, and I would draw on all of the other points that have been brought out in comments that I think the primary thesis of Ephesians is that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, or with which you've been called, depends on your interpretation. And we'll explore that nuance when we get there. But um, I think that's what it's about, that one, we want to understand, we want to be enlightened, we want to know what God has done for us, and that that should impact how we now live. So, there's a couple of other verses in four that really jumped out. So, you got the walk word, you know, to me, that's the theme for me, because I, I always have to, you know, keep myself. <laughs> but in 12, uh, why is it? It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service filling up by Christ. So, yep. why is for the equipping and the work? service. You know. And then uh, in 24, putting on a new self, which is the likeness of right. God. Right, putting on the new. That's, so to me, put all those together to really get a cool uh, sort of mission statement for, for me personally and for the church. Yep. And we'll unpack that, especially the equipping the saints part. And that whole uh, giving gifts um, passage with quotation out of uh, Psalm 68, uh, verse 18. So we'll we'll take a look at that. Daniel, do you think that um, that clothing yourself in the body of Christ is kind of like the uh, is symbolized in uh, coming back out of the water in baptism? Um. Yes, and more. Right. Right. So, um, we, are, we are a new creature. New creature what? 
in Christ Jesus, which means that we're not in, or we're not of the world, or Jesus said, I don't have to be taken out of the world, right. and then you can Right. So, uh, one of the big things that we want to uncover, and we're going to look at that in the first three chapters, because it has to do with knowing your position in Christ, and you emphasize position, and we do have a position, um, and that that uh, or a relationship to God and His redemptive work, and that that is in Christ. And so we're going to really dwell on this preposition here, in, and what that means to be in Christ. And to unpack that, we need to unpack all that God has done, right? Um, and what He has done through the Son and how we are related to him, positionally aligned in that redemptive work. And that that impacts, one, both uh, being raised in new life in Christ, right? How, how we now live, to, to walk in that new creature. I kind of got this imagery of, like, the guy without Christ, and he's in the same, he's trying to take his position, saying, I, I deserve to make this position, uh, God, you know? And then he just gets like vaporized, and then the other guy who has Christ in front of him, and you know when that the vapor, of, when the light shines, then you're covered by that by Christ instead. So there's your position, the same position as the guy without Christ, who's trying to get himself. Right. And what will happen is, as we come to understand our position in Christ, we'll understand um, the strength of the Lord. Number one. We'll, because we're, we're called to stand in the mighty strength of God, right? So uh, we're to walk and we're to stand. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So we need to understand the strength of his might and the strength of the Lord. And that ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to stand in that. We're going to stand fast, as we read in 13. We're going stand, to stand fast or stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as it goes through. So you see actually uh, a progression, just like you see in Psalm 1, right? That there's a progression in um, first dwelling in God, knowing your position in Him, then exercising that in your life, walking in the Spirit, and finally making a stand in a spiritual battle. And then once you've done all the stand? Yeah, having done everything, it says, stand firm. So the the outline for Ephesians, just based on answering the why question, is very simple. Sit, walk, stand. Sitting is, is where we... Um, we understand, we are enlightened, um, and in wisdom um, embrace who Christ is and what he's done and our position in him. So we sit in Christ. We walk in the world. So what we're going to see is there's a whole unpacking of what it means to actually walk enlightened, to um, walk in the light as a spiritual being. Right? And then finally, we're going to see what it means to take a stand. So that's the, the organization of Ephesians. It's really simple, but it's really deep. It's really cool, too, 
position of resting in Christ, but you have to know that. That's right. You have to know it in order to be able to walk in spirit. Yep, absolutely. Because without that, what would happen? Mm-hmm. Without the foundational knowledge mm-hmm. of who Christ is, what would happen to you? You walk out to an intersection and get hit. <laughs> you, can, you can imagine all things are true about the world, none of which may be. Right? If you don't know who Christ is, you don't know the, the truth, um, and you don't know how you personally are in that, in that work, redemptive work of God, you have no strength. You're just, the, the depth of your, um, of your own deception is infinite. Yes. I mean, we, we are not only deceived, but we deceive ourselves. Our heart is desperately wicked. Yeah. Right? So that's that's the result of sin, is that our eyes are darkened and not we don't have enlightenment. We have to come into the light. So without that foundational knowledge, um, your Christianity is an inch deep, even though it may be a mile wide. And when that's challenged, um, it often does not hold. In other words, when the battle is presented to you, you don't stand because you haven't been walking, strengthening yourself because you don't have a firm foundation. You don't. You haven't been sitting in the position in which God put you. It's like uh, if you were trying to walk, walk on a tightrope and you kind of lost your balance, but then you were running, you know, and you were about to fall the whole time. Like, oh, you're, you're never going to make it to the other side. But how far can you get? You know. Right. <laughs> and some people do that. Right. That's how they live their life, thinking, well, I'll worry about it in the last moment. Mm-hmm. And, and then the last moment comes, it's like, what did I waste all my time on? Mm-hmm. You know, I should have been figuring this out. Meditating on his word day and night. should have been meditating on his word day and night. So that's what you read in the first psalm, is that we're uh, encouraged in, in verse 2, his delight, that the light of, of the righteous is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he's pondering that position that God has secured for him. And, and that's where the humility piece comes in. Because when you start pondering that position, you realize you had no part in it. It's only by the, the incredible uh, love, grace, and mercy of God that we have anything at all. Right? And that changes. Because what happens is, is that gives you uh, an anchor for your soul. It gives you um, the strength to be able to walk. And then there's not only encouragement, but guidance in how we should walk. Um, so that you'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, <clears throat> and in whatever he does, he prospers. So, you know, this isn't a prosperity gospel, um, but it's uh, a truth that when you are walking with God, good things happen. Not necessarily the way the world calls good things, but God is good all the time. So if you are in accord with Him, if you're walking in the light, um, you could be in no better place. Perhaps He's referring to the fact that you'll be have eternal life and that the world's view being this life even altogether complete to the day you're dead. Right. Is all considered all just maybe before that you know fruit is um, full and complete. 
Well, we want to understand what that eternal life is. It's abundant, right? In fact, it's more than abundant. We read in John 10.10. 10. He comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. And that it's talking about quality, not a quantity. So the world would be concerned with the quantity of life, right? Uh, when I say a quantity, they're worried about the number of days you have. Well, if you have unending days, what's important? The quality. What's the quality of those days? And, and God, you know, really drives us home as you get older. And, uh, and quality of life becomes much more of a concern. Um, so we worry about, you know, are we going to become uh, frail and sickly and all these things. So medicine is about giving you quality days, right? First, they want to give you unending days, and they want to give you quality days. Well, in eternal life, in God's kingdom, there is no end, right? So you have unending days, but it's not just unending days. It's unending days with him in the presence of goodness, as opposed to unending days absent from him, which would be hell, right? So you see that declared. So it's about, about understanding what that life is. And how we are positioned in that through God's redemptive work. Because outside of God's redemptive work, we're in hell. That's, that's a reality. And that's the state of the world today. Right? And that's pretty sad. Well, God's redemptive work is alive in the world. Pardon? God's redemptive work is alive in the world. Yep. And guess, guess, guess who it's alive? And everyone who believes in him. Right, we're going to find out about the church and the relationship of that life in the church to the world. <clears throat> right, so that's part of our walking, how we walk. Tim? There's an assumption in that whole God worthy thing, and then in verse 24, for put on the new self, which is the likeness of God. Um, six chapters here. So what I, would, what I would say is that it takes no skill and no wisdom and no enlightenment to walk unworthy. Right? It's like an escalator. It's always going one direction. right? And if you don't, if you don't move against it, if you're trying to go up and the escalator's going down, you just stand there, you will go down. Right? So it takes effort to walk. And, and that needs to be understood. That, and, and not only that, but it takes continuous effort to walk. It's not like you get to a plateau and then you can kind of hang out there for a while. That escalator's constantly moving against you. Now, I think of it like gravity. And uh, gravity rules. I came to understand that when I jumped out of an airplane. <laughs> um, 
no matter what you think about the nature of reality, if you uh, don't deal with gravity, you've got a real problem. Gravity will deal with you. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's the same thing. It doesn't require any skill. It doesn't require any wisdom to walk unworthy. Um, but it requires wisdom and skill to walk worthy of your calling. So, so, that, so Paul's going to spend a lot of time unpacking that. What that means in the church, what that means in the family, and what that means in uh, the world. That's why I would change your number two, the walk thing. We're not just walking in the world. Right. I originally uh, expanded on that. I said, walk uh, in the world, enlightened by the Spirit. I kept going on and on and on. And I realized (laughs) I'm doing my full exposition here in an outline. I I just wanted to make it uh, understanding the organizational structure. Because the organizational structure should be um, supporting the theme. Right, so I was at, what's the why question? Why did Paul write this? When I, and I already gave you the who, because I said Paul. So let's, let's resolve that one real quick. Um, who wrote this? Paul. How do you know that? Very first word, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So, this, well, I was reading something about Ephesians. Whether Paul wrote, you know, whether Paul wrote this, even though it says, right, uh, and also to me it seemed like, you know, he spent three years, if not more years, in Ephesus. Right. And this is kind of written to like unbelievers, even though it says uh, to walk in like they are Christians, you know, atheists. Yep. And uh, so I was just wondering what. Kind of like your take, even though whether this was a a letter to be circulated, right? Or and later, you know, did that say Paul's name? Right. So, so uh, that that actually was a style at that point in history where people, if they wanted to add authority to their writing, they would either cite that authority, which is what we do today. So that's called an appeal to authority when you're making an argument. Or they would assume that authority. They would become Paul, right? So I'm going to write this in Paul's hand, Paul the Apostle, because that gives what I'm writing authority. This is God's um, word. Yeah. Pardon? This is God's word. <laughs> it is God's word. And what we understand is that clearly the internal evidence, I mean, it claims that it's written by Paul. You get to chapter 3, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So, He's assuming a certain understanding of his history, right, to um, add the authority that it is, in fact, Paul's writing. Um, so, so we need to look at that. We need to look at what's outside the external evidence, not just the internal evidence. Is this really written by Paul, or is it just somebody claiming the authority? And I think that's what your question is, right? So what do you know about Paul? And why he would have written, so I'm going to link who and why together. The, the second piece of the who question is who is he writing to? The Gentiles, you Gentiles. Is it a general statement that he's no. writing to all Gentiles? No, the, 
to the saints through our nemesis and our faith yeah. in Christ Jesus. So again, in, in the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right, so he's making his introduction. Who am I? Who am I writing to? And this is the blessing upon you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And then he's going to start his main purpose in writing. So, Daniel, you got, you got your hand up. For the why? Well, I'm, I'm looking at both who and why. Because the why um, is important because of the who. I think the why is John 17. John chapter 17. So, expand on that. Because... Uh, <clears throat> Because of our position in Christ, he, uh, in Christ, well, he, when he prayed to the Father, um, he's praying and he says, he asks, uh, he says that um, the world has hated them because they are not of the world as I am not of the world, you know, and um, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, and it is for their sake that I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth as well. Your word is true. Right. He says, your word is truth, and that, and he is the truth, the way, the truth, the life, right? So, he is the truth, God's word, mm-hmm. and that they may be sanctified in the truth, those who believe in him, um, therefore they're in him, in the truth, and that's... So, so the, the who would be uh, the those in John chapter 17. Right. So, we understand John chapter 17 being a priestly prayer, right? Because the priest, we know the priest's role is as an intercessor, a mediator, one that stands between the people and God and presents the people and their sacrifice to God. In this case, Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice. So that prayer is a priestly prayer. And when he's referencing the peoples that he's representing to God, he's representing all of humanity. Um, that are saved, right? Those through uh, for which his uh, sacrifice that's being offered is effective. So we're going to unpack some of that theology as we move through Ephesians. So are there some for whom Christ's sacrifice is not effective? Are there some that are not called? Are there some that are not chosen? Because all of those words are used in here. In fact, what we're going to look at as we move through this, and I'm going to get back to the who question here, is that we're going to be, you've seen this slide before. I put this up when we've talked about salvation and what, what's the theology about salvation. Well, it starts with God and it ends with God, as all things do. It starts with God's choosing. We're going to see that unpacked here. And it also involves God's grace. And you'll notice when I list God's grace here, I say prevenient and effectual. Prevenient means uh, comes before. It isn't the result of something. It is, if it's a result of anything, it's a result of God's character. It's that which, because of who he is, he is gracious. He is gracious in advance of us needing grace. He is gracious in advance um, and in the presence of us needing grace. Right? So that's what prevenient means. Effectual 
means that that grace can actually um, accomplish that which God desires. So you can be saved. He chooses you. His grace is, is uh, prevenient and effectual. And then there's a calling, which involves revelation by the Spirit. And we understand that that's both general and specific. So, but you'll notice the other parts of, of uh, salvation that we talk about repentance, faith, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. What you're going to see as we move through this theology of Paul in the first three chapters here, he basically stops right here when he wants us to understand our position in Christ. Right? So when we get to uh, chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. He's focusing on the first three aspects of salvation. Even though faith is mentioned, which is part of the conversion process, there's no elaboration on that. Right? The elaboration, if it comes at all, is in how we should walk and lighten because of the revelation that we should walk worthy of our calling. Right? So, and, and I realize I'm jumping way ahead, but I wanted to do that because when we look at who this is written to, it could be written as, um, as was stated by Jack, that this could be a, a circular letter that has no intended audience. It's just good theology that everybody should read. And so when you read in, in verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus, is he writing specifically to those folks at Ephesus and what's his relationship with them? Or is he writing to all that are faithful in Christ Jesus? Good answer. Both. I think it is both. But what you'll notice is in the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians, the at Ephesus is not there. Mm-hmm. Yes. So some people would say this was always intended to be a circular letter and not a specific letter to a church. Just to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right. And that at Ephesus was added as part of the circular. And kind of in two eleven. They want a top billing. Talk about <laughs> <laughs> Well, why did they want top billing? So we're still on the who's. Who, who was the one that actually carried this letter? As you were reading through, did you ask that one? So we know who wrote it from the internal evidence. We know who it's to from the internal evidence, not necessarily knowing the studying all the manuscripts and knowing what's in and what's out, but just looking at the English translation. Um, who, who, who was the one that actually took this from Paul's pen and brought it to the church? Yeah. So you go to chapter 6 in uh, verse 21. But that you may also know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Titius. I know I didn't say it right, but that's okay. Uh, The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you. So he's the carrier. Now that sounds, it's getting more personal. It's getting more specific. It's getting more specific. In fact, um, do a little bit of study on this guy and where he's from. 
Um, and he says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. So it's now going from a more general circular to a more specific. And so even though some of the earliest manuscripts don't have at Ephesus, um, it, it looks like it actually is a personal letter to the church at Ephesus, right? from there, going there, he went there. Right. And that's why um, I don't think, okay, let's see, i got a margin note here. Okay, it does, my margin note at Ephesus does not have any note that this is not in the earliest manuscripts. So sometimes you'll be reading through and you'll have a margin note that says this isn't in the earliest manuscripts. The reason they add that margin note is, I mean, they're not trying to clutter you with understanding Greek or anything like that. They're trying to inform you that there is uncertainty about it. In this case, there's no uncertainty. Does that mean that I don't have to love my wife? I don't know how you go... It wasn't personally to him, is what he's saying. Oh, no, no, no. So, so that's why you say the both, because it, in fact, was a circulated letter. It did get wider circulation than just Ephesus. And, in fact, if you look at the purpose, it's very general. So why, going back to why now, if Paul wrote it, and it was to this particular church... Um, even delivered by one that was from that church. Why did Paul write this? I mean, he, he definitely wants them to understand their position in Christ. And he, so what are the circumstances? If you go back to Acts, this is a, a, a city that was steeped in idolatry. Yes. And all sorts of people in worship. And if you, and if you look have the faithful of Christ who who come to Christ and are saved, but they have, they're ignorant. They have no knowledge. They That's have no right. Understanding, and they've got to be trained in the very most simplistic things. That's absolutely correct. I just experienced that when I was in India. You have brand new Christians that have a very fervent faith. And it's very easy for that fervent faith to go boom, sideways. Because if they don't have good theology, remember the Peanuts cartoon from last week, uh, if they don't have good theology, it's very easy to get, once you're building that that structure of the church, to have it go sideways. Because theology is foundational. Right? Like so, so something must have been happening that would have caused Paul to write this letter, both in a general and a specific way. So what was happening? So, And you said, let's look at Acts. So that's why I distributed uh, Dan Wallace's chronological table of the apostolic age. And for those that walked in late, there's additional copies out there. Um, So this is part of his uh, THD dissertation and actually became a published work, although you can't find it today. Um, All you can find is you can search the, the dissertation, but he actually had a separate publication, just like he did for chronological aspects of the life of Christ. Um, that one persists today. You can buy that at christianbooks.com. You can find it um, in, from other sources on the internet. But you can't find uh, Dan Wallace's dissertation unless you go to the publications at Dallas and, and pull it out, and you have to pay for that, of 
course, but um, this is freely distributed, this summary. So let's take a look at what was going on that would have uh, in, would help us inform, be informed about the why. What's the why question about? So um, you probably all have seen a map like this one. Can anybody see that from the back? <laughs> is, it, is it somewhat viewable? <laughs> Let me see if I can maybe make it a little bit more clear. I think that helped a little bit. Okay, so this has got uh, an area of Mediterranean, and I'm going to... What's that? There's the boot. There's the boot, yep. And I'm going to kick the boot out here. Okay, give you a little bit bigger picture, or a little bit uh, more complete picture. So you've got, over here, you've got Israel, right? So this is Israel, you'll notice this little uh, piece that uh, jumps out, that's uh, Mount Carmel into the Mediterranean, and so this is uh, the Jezreel Valley right here, and this is Israel north-south, Galilee up here, Judea down here, um, and... What the various lines are, are Paul's various missionary journeys. How many have seen a map like this? Okay, so I'm going to unclutter this a little bit. He got around. Yeah, he got around. That's before planes. Okay, so if you look at the chronology uh, that's in front of you, um, it's very accurately dated that the crucifixion was on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And um, if you've been in any of the other classes, I've unpacked that, why I believe that is an accurate date. Um, and I, I will stand by what, what uh, Harold Honer puts in here, because I, I've looked at the evidence, and I think that's accurate. So what that would mean is that um, if the crucifixion... our current calendar. That's based on our current calendar, correct. So our, if you took a, right, yeah. So if you took it back to that day and age, and the dating based upon uh, the prophecies of Daniel, the particulars of the Jewish calendar, when um, the Passover would have been, and what opportunities based on when Jesus's birth was and his relative age, when that would have taken place, he would have entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday on March. 30th, 33 AD, and that that week would have progressed, he would have been uh, crucified on uh, Friday, um, and I know that Friday crucifixion date is a problem for some, but uh, it would have occurred on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, and that he would have rose from the dead on April 5th, 33 AD, Sunday, first day of the week, and that Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2, would have happened on Sunday, May 24th, 33 AD. So just putting together the timeline, that's the birth of the church, right? You get uh, Peter's uh, sermon and being taken before the Sanhedrin. You get the death of Ananias and Sapphira. All of these are happening um, as 33 AD progresses. Then uh, you have uh, Peter and John brought before the Sanhedrin again, and that has to do with that Christianity is catching on, and that people are hearing the message, and they're recognizing the truth through this revelation of the Spirit. Um, they're observing these simple fishermen's life, 
and they're recognizing that there's a power there that needs to be reckoned with and that that power is the power of God and that that power is demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ as they share the gospel message. And so the church is growing and the leadership of the, the Jewish peoples is getting concerned. They've been concerned since Jesus was there, right? Because they were advocates for his crucifixion. Um, and so they start uh, then persecution of the church, you see, in early 35, where uh, Stephen is martyred on April, in April of 35 AD. And then that summer, after Peter's, or after uh, Stephen's martyrdom, when the church is um, growing still, but persecuted, because they've been now dispersed, um, you get Paul on his way, or Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus to flesh out these rebellious Christians and uh, imprison them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Because they're dying. clearly heretics. Pardon? On his own dying. Yeah. You know, he's very zealous. He's a Pharisee. Right? And that he is uh, he has been trained as a lawyer and a Pharisee. So he had um, Roman and Greek schooling about um, rhetoric and law. And he also, from a very early age, had specific religious training, which would make him a Pharisee. Right? And he was in a position of influence within the leadership and took it upon himself to go and track down these Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem because they're heretics and they're destroying uh, the Jewish uh, faith and message. So that happens in the summer of 35 when Paul's knocked off his high horse. Might have been a low horse because what we understand is that Paul was not a man of great stature. He wasn't a particularly tall guy. Now, you wouldn't know that if you watch the movies because the movies always have Jesus and Paul and Peter um, characterized as probably physically different than they were. Strong guys. Right, right. Peter was probably a burly guy. John was probably a burly guy. But, uh, I mean, there's the Sons of Thunder, right? You know, they've got their leather jackets and their caps. Okay. So, so, sure enough, those guys, you've got to be careful with them. Um, but nonetheless, Paul, his strength was not in might, but in his understanding of the law. He was well-schooled, and he could argue to the point of irritation of most of the people that he was arguing against. They, they realized they could not refute his logic. He was very good at constructing logical arguments, which is why we see that structure in his, his letters. He's writing as a lawyer. He wants you to understand this, right? Well, he gets knocked off his high horse, low horse, and he then spends uh, a significant amount of time in um, Arabia, Right, and as that happens, he gets some education. He withdraws, and that would actually be a, a common response, right? Um, I know for me, when I first became a Christian, it's like everything I thought I knew was right turned out to be wrong, and all of a sudden, in humility, I'm coming to know what is truly right, and that 
oh man, I was so much in opposition to that. I can just imagine Paul as he's actually party to Stephen's stoning. Right? Because we read about that account in Acts where those that were actually throwing the stones put their, when they took off their jackets, they set them at Paul's feet to guard while they stoned Stephen. Right? So Paul's like part of that. And all of a sudden he realizes, whoa, what did I just do? What have I done my whole life? The content of his heart that enabled that to happen. Right? Yeah. So he pulls back. What do you suppose he's doing when he pulls back? Repenting. Pardon? Repenting. Repenting and re... Grieving? Relearning. <laughs> he's reading the scriptures in a new way. All of a sudden, all those things he heard that he had dismissed... He's now taking seriously. He heard what Peter said. He heard what James said. And now that's affecting him. Right? So he has this period of time where um, he withdraws. But he doesn't stay withdrawn. He eventually goes to the church in uh, Jerusalem and he validates his his calling. So in that period of time where he's withdrawn and he's in a deep study mode, but he's still sharing that which has happened to him, but in a very small, contained way. Because most people are scared to death of him. Did, did he, uh, after he was blinded, then he went to Damascus, and then uh, it, it, who was it that um, that put the, or what was the guy's name in the place that he stayed at? Street, street. <laughs> Speak up, Tim. Straight street, but I don't remember the guy's name. Saul. No, 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 the guy goes in So, so uh, you read about it in Acts uh, chapter 9, right? So, uh, the beginning of chapter 9 is, is Paul says, now, now Saul, his name hasn't been changed yet, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul is getting the official uh, support for his trek to Damascus. And we read about him getting knocked off um, the horse, and uh, the Lord says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in another area we'll read, it's like, why are you kicking against the goads when Paul shares this? So when he is, uh, so Luke is writing here the first piece, but the, we, later on we find out that Jesus is very specific. He says, you're, you're, um, I'm, the, a goad is a sharp stick that they would put on the front of the ox cart. So when the ox would kick, he would hit that sharp stick and he'd recognize, whoa, I'm supposed to go forward, not backwards, right? And a similar uh, idea is in a bullfight, you have what they call the picadors. And the picadors come out, and they have these long sticks, pointy sticks, and they poke the bull to irritate him, right? In that case, they're trying to get the bull riled up so that the fighter can come out and slay the bull. But in the case of a goat on an ox cart, it's to keep the ox in line. It's to keep the ox going in the right direction. 
And what Paul was doing is he was misunderstanding his, um, his Pharisaic, Pharisaic teaching uh, to the point where he was actually taking the course that God wanted because God chose the Jews and gave revelation to the, to the, to the Hebrew nation for a specific purpose, that they would be a nation of priests, that they would be that intermediary to bring the world to God, right? And, we, and that, so it makes perfect sense that that's where Messiah, the one who would be the high priest, would come from, right? And so Jesus cuts him to his, his core in his first confrontation. He says, why are you doing this? You've read. You should know. You're kicking against the goat. Your whole life has been on the track that, you know, so that he can write what he, what he writes. Right. And so what, what happens is, is that um, Saul, his name hasn't been changed yet, um, because his name has changed just like Peter's name has changed, just like Jacob's name was changed. Right? So they all, when they had an experience, an encounter with God, their name was changed, and that meant something significant. So we need to understand that there's significance in Saul becoming Paul, and that it was a realignment of his, his life, such that he was now walking in accord with God rather than kicking against God. Right? So he becomes Paul, and the first thing that happens is, is he, he's blinded. And, uh, and there was a guy, Ananias, uh, in Damascus, and that's, the I think, the name that you were looking for. You read about in uh, chapter 9 of Acts, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, where he is praying. And what was Ananias' response? <laughs> Say what? <laughs> yeah. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. You sure got the right name? Yeah. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But God said, no, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine. So what was happening is that the calling of Paul was from the very beginning that Paul in the very first words of Jesus to Paul not only did he say hey you got it all wrong but he was going to use him getting it all wrong to actually reach those who had never heard the message about who God was let alone that there could be salvation right and that's what happens as you go through that story um, you find out that uh Paul gets his eyes, and for several days he tries to preach uh, Christ uh, crucified and resurrected, and everybody's like, get away from me, dude. I think you're trying to trick me. right? So he withdraws. And we read about that withdrawal in Galatians. So in Acts then, between um, verses, or in chapter 9, um, in between... Uh, Verse 25 and 26 is two years or a year and a half, basically. Uh, there's a period of time that's happening. So for him to go from Jerusalem to Damascus, remember this was before the bullet train. Um, <laughs> it took a while. Um, he was there in Damascus for a while, as we read. And uh, it says that he, was, he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, mm-hmm. saying he's the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one who destroyed... Uh, 
those who call on his name. And now he's come here for the purpose of, you know, uh, taking us before the, the chief priests. And Paul continued doing that, and it says, after many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. So they, they were about done with Paul. And that's what you read about. Uh, so where you see Paul in Damascus and Arabia, and you read about the Arabia piece, the, the long withdrawal in, in uh, Galatians. But we're reading about the short withdrawal here. Oh, so he goes from Damascus straight to, then he came to Jerusalem. Right, so he goes, yeah, and, and what happened is when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going there to uh, validate his calling. So it's like he got, so God says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you in a way that nobody else could do, right? You have this p- particular understanding of uh, Jewish law and how Christ is Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, and um, that I'm going to send you not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the whole world, to the nations. And so Paul's like zealously, yeah, let's go, and he immediately gets shut down. It's like, whoa, maybe I misheard. Have any of you ever had that experience? (laughs) You think this is what God's called you to do? It's like, ooh, I push in that direction, and I'm getting opposite response I expected maybe not at that level that's, that's what happened to Paul to the point where they were trying to kill him so he had to escape through a window right yeah so uh, so anyway he comes to Jerusalem and, uh, and they're um, very weary of him but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to them and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, that is, the apostles, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Uh, And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. When the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So this is... That's when he goes. Yeah, that's that exile period that he has. And so you, there's a, a period of silence where Paul is, you know, really trying to understand if he's really called, how come he got this response? To the point where he ends up back in a church in Antioch, which is a very influential town. Um, Antioch, and I know I'm over here. Antioch <laughs> is up here. Um, Where's Tarsus? Pardon? Where's Tarsus? Tarsus is right up here. That's Syria. Yeah. So what happens is, is he gets associated with Barnabas. Barnabas is in this church here in Antioch. When they actually go to send out missionaries, Barnabas says, hey, I know this scholar. I know this, this guy who's a rhetorician, a lawyer. He will argue people um, to, the point, yeah, <laughs> to the point where they just cave, right? Um, let's bring him in. And so that's what happens. But there's that period of time where Paul is off. Um, and not doing that ministry. And then he, he's called to ministry, you read, in 41. So there's a good period of time there uh, before he uh, uh, goes to Antioch. Paul goes to Antioch in the spring of 43, um, and then James is beheaded. And so all of these things are happening as you read through. Paul doesn't actually start his first missionary journey until 48 A.D., so his conversion is in the summer of 35, but he doesn't start until 48. So that's that's a long period of time where he's being tested and tried and trained. It's just like, go back to your beginning, you're, you're 
That's right. That's exactly it. We're going to pick up at the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys next week. I'll try and get through them so that we can actually make some progress through Ephesians. But we want to understand the why question really, really fully because that will help us as we're unpacking the theology. Why is he answering this question? Um, so let's go ahead and close in prayer. And I realize I went a little over today. Um, Lord, we just thank you for our opportunity to come before you and to study your word and to study the life of Paul, who's an incredibly faithful servant for you and gave his life for you. Um, Lord, uh, we don't always understand or know all of the things that you're doing in our lives as far as that testing and uh, trials and training. But it's for your purpose, Lord, that we would be equipped, that we would be equipped um, to share your word to a world that is totally lost and um, not going to hell is already in hell apart from you. And so, Lord, uh, we just ask that you would um, help enlighten us, that we would be able to walk in the light, Lord, um, as you have given us wisdom and revelation, Lord, um, and that we would be able to be effectual in that, and Lord, and finally to be able to stand fast as we um, understand the spiritual battle that we're in. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you be with uh, Bob this morning, actually, I can't remember if it's Bob or if it's Rob that's preaching. Um, Lord, we just ask you for your blessing upon the, the India missions recap um, and all of that. Lord, we just thank you for the rain. I was hoping for more of it, but it's it's great and just right what you have what you do. And Lord, so um, we ask for your blessing. We thank you for uh, your provision, your protection, and, and always, Lord, we thank you for your service for us that you died um, for our sin that we might have life in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this. In your name we pray.